Please stand for the reading of God's word. This morning we'll be in Romans 9, verse 30 through 10, 14. That's page 551 in the Bibles provided for you. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did, who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if we were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if we confess, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the word. Uh, for the fact that the word became flesh in your son and came near to us. We can't in our own selves draw near to you. But in your mercy, you've come showing yourself, revealing who you are to us in the most magnificent way. And so, God, I pray that we would look to you in everything that we do, look to you uh, that you'd be the answer uh, for us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Uh, so... Ryder is taking a class. He started a class uh, in personal finance. We en enrolled him in, I guess, in a, uh, like a kind of a homeschool co-op kind of a, a deal. And 
And it's actually for, uh, designed for high school students, but you know, whatever, we decided to throw them in there anyways and see how it goes. Um, I guess you can do that when you homeschool, you just do whatever you want. And at the beginning of the class, the first week, uh, one of his assignments was to do a multiple choice pretest. You know, these pretests, you've seen these, you know, you take the test beforehand and then you take the class and you take the test afterwards and you get to see how much you learned. Um, and, you know, multiple choice tests, that's, you know, if you, from school, you remember, like, you prefer the multiple choice test, right? Like, you know, I get some options to pick from. Um, usually, that's the route I'd like to go on a test. But this test, you know, not only did it have, like, this tech, some technical kind of financial jargon going on, not only was it designed for high school students and writers 12 years old, but also, I'm going to be honest, some of these multiple choice questions were worded as sort of tricky. Like it was intentionally trying to disguise the right answer, if you will. And Ryder wanting to knock out the test quickly. I mean, honestly, you understand, even if it was a, tr a test for a grade, you'd be like, eh, let's get through this, right? want to get this done so I can play video games or whatever. But it's a test that doesn't even count for a score. So why am I spending a bunch of time on this? I mean, the kid's got a point there. But he's trying to kind of work through it quickly. And, and he starts to read the first answer. And it kind of sounds good. And so he's like, yeah, yeah, that must be it, you know. Doesn't read the other answers. Doesn't even read through the whole answer at all. Just like the first three words. And that sounds mostly, right? Whoop. Some answers, they sound good initially, but as you are thinking about them, as, as you get towards the end of them, there's some critical error in them, right, that renders them untrue. On a pretest, it's no big deal. Just means you've got more room for improvement by the end of the, the semester, right? But on the final test, it makes a lot of difference. So here's the deal. As we've jumped back into Romans last week, we found that there was this massive question hanging over everything. For eight chapters, Paul had laid out his case for why the gospel is salvation to all who believe and how in Christ we have this, this eternal security, this promise that he will fulfill, that he will finish this salvation that he started in us. But the question was, why are so many Jews to whom God had promised so much not believing the gospel? And yet, at the same time, the church is just filling up with these Gentiles. In the first part of chapter 9, it declared God's sovereignty over salvation, that he keeps his promises to his people whom he's chosen, both Jews and Gentiles. But Paul here anticipates the next question at the beginning of our passage. It says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. You can understand the question, right? How can this be? 
that these unbelieving Gentiles, whom, if you remember all the way back to Romans 1 and 2, we found were incredibly immoral, right? They had no uh, idea of who God was like the Jews did. By any human measurement, we would say that their behavior uh, was way less right than their Jewish counterparts. They had a conscience, right? And that helped to a certain extent, Romans said earlier in the book. And yet they were, but yet they were uh, out of touch with the reality of God's character. I don't know about you that this may sound a little bit like some things we see today in our own world, and increasingly so. But on the other side, you had these Jews, right? And they had the scriptures that let them know about who God was, what his character is, what, what he's about. And they had the law that, tell, that told them what was and was not moral. And they had this whole system of living that God had laid out for them that was meant to help them to live more rightly, to sin less. Certainly, certainly if these immoral Gentiles can be found right before God, then then the Jews must be too, right? This is the question that we have. And the, 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 big the big test, if you will, it has one question this morning. One question. How can you be found right before God? It's a test with one question. How can you be found right before God. And when this passage talks about righteousness, I just want you to understand, in case uh, maybe you don't understand, what does it mean there? When it talks about righteousness, what it's referring to, just like it did in the first six chapters of Romans, it's talking about a legal rightness before God. It's talking about how are we justified when you stand before God on that day, what verdict will he pass? Are you right or are you not? And our passage is going to offer up three multiple choice questions, answers, I mean. Three multiple choice answers. Three potential answers, but only one is right. So don't be fooled. Read through them all. Consider them all as we will this morning. And here are your answers that you can pick from. A, through works for God. B, through zeal for God. Or C, through faith in God. And Paul's going to talk about each one of these in our passage this morning. All right. How can you be found? Right, we, got, we got the guy that knows the answer right here. Shh, don't, don't tell everyone ahead of time. You're ruining the end. No. Uh, how can you be found right before God? First multiple choice answer. Through works for God. You know, works are good, right? Obedience is good. People who love Jesus obey him. That's what Jesus said. Jesus commissioned us in the Great Commission to teach people how to obey all that he commanded. Works for God are a good thing. That sounds 
pretty good. Is that, is that the right answer? In fact, Paul says in, back in chapter 7, verse 12, if you remember, that the law is holy. And the commandments, he says, are holy, righteous, and good. So the commandments are righteous. Then wouldn't doing them, wouldn't that make us righteous? I mean, what's the problem with putting some effort into following the law if it's holy, righteous, and good, as God is holy, righteous, and good? So works of the law sound right initially because those works are actually right to God. The problem, though, the problem isn't pursuing the law. We find out in the text, the problem isn't pursuing the law. The problem is what you hope to achieve by pursuing it. It doesn't actually accomplish that goal because we fail at it. It can't actually make you right before God because all of us fail in pursuing it. Not only, not only did they the Jews, the, the Israelites, right? Not only did they fail at the law itself and following it, but they failed at it also because when they pursued it, they pursued it in the wrong way. They did not pursue it by faith, it says. And that's critical. That's critical. They pursued it outside of faith. Part of the original purpose of the law was to point people to faith in the gospel for salvation. That I would look at the law and I would say, I failed at that. I need something else. And I would turn instead to God's unconditional promise and trust in Jesus. But they pursued it outside of faith, and thus they were automatically disobedient to the law. See, the gap between God's law and the law of our culture, it seems to be ever-widening. The gap between God's law and the law of the world we live in today seems to be ever-widening, right? The farther that gap gets, the more our culture is opposed to to what we would call Christian morals, Christian morality, then the more distinct that difference is. And I think the more that that happens, the more we will see Christians either abandon God's word and ultimately abandon faith in Christ altogether, or we'll see Christians press into following God's word more and more closely. And that could be a really good thing, right? In some ways, that could be a very refining thing for all of us. But there are two dangers. There are two dangers I want us to be aware of. First, there's a danger for the moral churchgoer. For the guy that goes to church every week, lives his life basically moral. I mean, yeah, we sin sometimes, but for the most part, seeking to try to follow the commands that they 
find in Scripture. The temptation is to see ourselves as more worthy of salvation than someone who is less moral than us or someone who doesn't attend church as often as we attend church. And in that, falsely putting part of our worthiness worthiness of salvation, which, newsflash, you have no worthiness for salvation. I just didn't, I don't know if you knew that. But I wanted to make sure that was clear. But in finding ourselves somewhat worthy of salvation because of how well we are following Jesus, what it does is it promotes pride in our hearts and thus causes us to sin. And it communicates to others that the way of salvation isn't Jesus, but it's through being moral. And so there's a greater danger because we give the appearance of something good while ushering people into hell. I think that leads to the second danger here. It's the danger of seeing people who don't share God's view of morality as the enemy rather than the mission. It becomes really easy then as pride begins to dwell up, you know, rise up in our hearts And as tensions form, to begin to see people who don't share God's view of morality as the enemy rather than as the mission. That's not to say that we shouldn't be on our guard against those views and behaviors that God would be opposed to sneaking into our own lives and into our own church. We should be on our guard. God calls us to do that. And yet, more and more, as more and more of the majority of people are living out of and believing false gospels that they've been taught from birth, that the world continues to preach at them, the more and more there is a need for the real gospel to be proclaimed. It was immoral Gentiles in Paul's day as he's writing Romans who are pouring into the Roman church, who are believing the gospel as it is being proclaimed. That's the mission. That's why we're still here, to make Jesus known. And so the first choice, the first multiple choice answer sounds good initially, but ultimately it fails because it, it kind of puts the cart before the horse, right? And so we move on to our second potential answer through zeal for God. We see it in chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. Paul reiterates his desire here to see Jews saved. You remember at the beginning of chapter 9, Paul's like, man, I I want nothing more than for my kindred, my my, my brethren, my, my fellow Jew to know Jesus, to believe the gospel. Paul reiterates it. It's not out of some sinful motivation that he's saying these things. It's out of desire to speak truth and for them to know and believe the truth. Indeed, he bears witness to their zeal, he says their passion, their confidence to act on God's behalf. And Paul, Paul's something of an expert on this, right? He's something of an expert on Jewish zeal for God. He, he says in other places that he was more zealous than anyone else. 
He went to greater lengths for God than anyone else did, than any other, than any other Jew. A passion and confidence, they're good things, right? We respect passionate people, people who are single-minded and focused. And they, they achieve these great things because of their focus and their, their effort, and we admire that, rightly. We admire confident people. Man, zealous people make things happen. They move and they motivate us. But zeal, for the sake of zeal, isn't necessarily good, right? I mean, there's a lot of really zealous KU basketball fans. There's a lot of really zealous soccer fans. That's not necessarily good, right? And just get, waiting for an amen there, but I guess we got a lot of KU and soccer fans here. Zeal for the sake of zeal isn't necessarily good. Paul says the problem is that their zeal wasn't according to knowledge. That's what he says. Zeal isn't the goal. Zeal moves us to a goal, right? But if you got the wrong goal, if the zeal is misdirected, then we're moving ourselves and others in the wrong way rather than the right way. We're giving a, a false sense of confidence, he uses the word ignorance here, and there's, there's something they, they, they didn't understand, something about God's righteousness that they weren't getting, and the result of which was that they were trying to establish their own righteousness instead, rather than submitting to God's righteousness. And verse 4 tells us what they're missing. It says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Not end as in he's going to abolish it, but end could be translated goal or fulfillment. That, that the goal, the fulfillment of the law was always, is always, has been, will be always Christ. Their zeal was misguided because they missed that the law was pointing to Jesus. They missed Jesus. Their zeal was misguided because they missed God himself. In other words, they had a zeal for God that led them to diligently follow the law in order to be found right in God's eyes without Christ rather than the reality of their inability to keep the law, driving them to Christ and thus zeal for him instead. Rather than driving them to the one who did keep the law in order to be found right in God's eyes. But you might ask, and Paul kind of anticipates the question, if if they were ignorant of it, then how is God keeping, like, holding them responsible? I mean, if they didn't know, how does God keep them, you know, hold them responsible for not knowing something? And verses 5 through 8 intend to demonstrate the fact that even though they don't know, they should have known. Their ignorance wasn't because God lacked something, lacked communicating something. Their ignorance was a willful ignorance. The problem wasn't their heads. The problem was their hearts. Look, 
Look at verses 5 through 8. He quotes a few Old Testament passages here to prove that it was always right there in the law. The very law that they pursued is actually what indicts them here. The very law they looked to to save them is the law that's condemning them. First, he quotes Leviticus 18. The person who does the commandments shall live by them. The original context is about how if they would obey the law in the land that God was giving them, then God would bless them. The general principle is that under the law, obedience is required for blessing. The logical outworking is that under that covenant, you better obey perfectly all of the law or else you're going to get cursed. But we know that no matter how sincere or hard we try, we fail at it. We know that no matter how sincere and hard the Israelites tried, they failed at it. It's not as if God had this law plan that he was trying to execute in the Old Testament and the Israelites failed at it. Great, you failed at that. And so now I got to come up with a new plan. Well, what am I going to do? Well, maybe I'll send Jesus instead because these guys can't get it. So, you know, Jesus will go and he'll finally do it. No, there's not a new plan that's been the plan from the beginning. In fact, To say it's a new plan would contradict the very point Paul's trying to make here, that Jesus was always, has always been the goal of the law. From the beginning, the Old Testament Israelite ought to have based their relationship with God on Christ. In the same way that we base our relationship with God on faith in Christ looking back at the cross, they should have based their relationship with God on Christ looking forward to his coming and what he would do. But is that a fair standard? In verses 6 through 8, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30. 11 through 14, and he uses it in an interesting way. Here's here's what the original passage says in Deuteronomy. It says, for this commandment that I command you today, it's not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is, is it beyond the seas that we should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. In the original context, Moses is saying, God brought it right to you. You don't have to go and like, uh, obtain it somehow. Like It's right here. Just do it. See, woven into the law is this clear evidence of the necessity of God's grace in coming first to Israel so that they might be restored to him. It's a foreshadowing of what God would do in Christ when the word would become flesh and would come even more near, even more clear than ever before. And so if those Jews back then in Deuteronomy 30 should have known, then you today ought to know. 
How could people so zealous miss it? How could people so fervent in the law and in the word and for God just absolutely miss the thing that they ought to have been looking for? Herein lies the danger for those who are zealous. Zeal tends to create blind spots because in our zeal, we don't stop to consider our ignorances. Guys, zeal tends to create blind spots. For instance, every year in April, Paul Panjada tells me the Royals are going to be a contender, that they're going to compete. And every year I tell him, no, they are not. I appreciate his zeal, but it's born from ignorance. No offense. (laughs) I couldn't resist that. No, guys, we, in seriousness, we can do this with theological issues, right? God opens our eyes to something we didn't see before. It greatly impacts our life, and that's good. That's good. We can get excited about it, passionate about it, amped up about it. But then, unfortunately, what we do oftentimes is we theologically bulldoze people for not getting something that we didn't get a few months ago or a year ago. Like, does that make sense? Or we can do this with different social issues that are going on. You know, something's really dear to our hearts, something that's significantly impacted the experience of our lives. Or something that, that's really bothersome to us, that frustrates us. We kind of get emotionally amped up about it. And we fail to deal with those things with the same rationale that we would deal with other things. Because in our zeal, we allow blind spots to exist. We, we choose to ignore that maybe we don't see the whole picture. With either of these, whatever that issue is, whatever that belief is around that issue, it it begins to become the filter through which we see everything. And and here's the, the really dangerous part. Here's the most dangerous part. If we're not careful, our zeal for that thing, it begins to replace the gospel as the functional center for our lives. Now, now we would never say that. We would, we would still say that the gospel is the center of our lives, but it functionally begins to replace the gospel as the thing in which our entire lives revolve around. I'm telling you, when you do that, when the gospel begins to be eclipsed by some other thing, it creates massive blind spots in your life. And, and, and you know, when it's, this is most tricky 
most deceptive when our view, when, when, when whatever our view is, our theological, on the theological thing or on the social issue or whatever, when we're actually biblically correct. That's when it's most tricky because, because even though we have a blind spot, when someone points it out, we can go, but, but I'm right about it. Yes, you, you are right about the fact of the thing, and yet you are also, I'm also right that you have a massive blind spot here. Hinders us from seeing those things we need to see. So answer A wasn't right. Through the work of God, that's not going to work. Answer B wasn't right. Through zeal for God. Answer C, come on. Answer C, if you didn't know, if you didn't get it from the very beginning, answer C is the right answer. Through faith in God. But before you circle it and move on, I want us to pay attention to what Paul says. Okay? Look at, look at verse 9. He, tell, he tells us that, that it's very close. It's a word of faith, right? And he says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart God raised him, you will be saved. To clarify, it's not as if he's saying that there are two conditions for salvation. You got to believe this and you need to say the right words. If you remember, remember that Passage from Deuteronomy 30 I read a second ago. Paul's still riffing on Deuteronomy 30 here. In verse 14 of that, it says, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. There's parallelism happening. Believing reflects the necessary heart change of trusting in Jesus as your Lord. Confession reflects the outward manifestation of that, that Jesus is Lord. Does that make sense? So we're not talking about two separate things you need to have happen in order to be saved. We're talking about two ways of saying the same thing based off of Paul's use of Deuteronomy 30 to kind of display what faith in God and faith in Christ looks like. And Paul brings everything full circle. He closes this section in verses 11 through 13 with words that are very similar to how he started in chapter 9, 30 through 33. I want you to pay attention to this. This is something that will help you in your own reading of the Bible, okay? It's something we call top and tail. And when there's a concept or a, a word or, or something that's, that's at the beginning of a section and then again at the end of a section, that that's, creates sort of parentheses, sort of brackets around that section. That, that, that's a, a, a logical unit for Paul, if, you make, if that makes sense. Everything, everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. Not that you won't have embarrassing moments here. Not that someone won't criticize you for being a Christian. That's not what he means. But what he means is when it matters most, when you're taking that final test on the day of judgment, you will not have any shame because God will deliver you. And in between between this top and tail, Paul argues from Scripture, as we've seen, that this is true. 
But at the end, he builds on it a little bit. What does he add that he doesn't say in the beginning? He says, for there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. That's not to say that Paul is saying that the, the categories of Jew and Greek don't matter. I mean, he uses them all through his letters. So it's not like he's saying, well, don't call someone a Jew or don't call someone a Gentile anymore. It's not what he means. What he means is in terms of being saved, in terms of salvation, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. What matters is do you have faith in Christ? Have you called on the Lord to be saved? It's no merit in you. It's all about Jesus. And this is the bottom line. Everyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the Lord, everyone who answers on that big test, how can I be right before God? Everyone whose answer is Jesus. They're saved. Not, ev not everyone who works for God. Though if you call on the Lord, you will inevitably work for the Lord, right? It's not everyone who is zealous for God. Though if you call on the Lord, you will grow in zeal for the Lord, I promise you. And everyone who calls on the Lord, everyone who calls on the Lord, though, will be awash with the immeasurable riches of God's kindness and grace and mercy to us. But let me tell you guys, just as there's dangers in the other two answers, there's danger, there's a danger in this answer as well. There's a danger for you if you answer through faith in God to this question. There's a danger. Let me tell you what the danger is. There's a danger that you might become so grateful for what God has done for you that you become willing to surrender things to him that you never thought you'd surrender to him before. Things that you'd never imagine giving up, you will willingly hand over for Christ. There's a danger here that you might do more work rather than less and yet simultaneously promote yourself less and God more. In a world that's totally fine with you promoting yourself, but really hates it when we glorify God. There's a danger here that you might grow radically passionate for God as you meditate on his son, him sending his son for you on your behalf that other people might look at you and think it's kind of weird and unnecessary, even other Christians. There's a danger here, guys, that you might be so different, begin to speak so different, have your life so transformed that people begin to ask questions and it begins to transform your relationships and your family and your work and your community and everything. There's a danger, guys, that if you really answer, see through faith in God, not because of my work, not because of my zeal, there's a danger that everything might change in your life. I'm just warning you ahead of time. There's a danger you might have more joy than you've ever had before, more hope than you've ever could imagine, more love in your heart for other people than you thought possible. There's a danger that everything might change. Because you don't trust in yourself, but you trust in God instead. In a few months, my son will take his final test. We'll see if he's been listening in class. I don't know. 
We'll see how much he's learned. I hope in the end that he won't be ashamed of his score. For us, one day, we'll face that final test. The one in which Paul says that those who call on the Lord will have no shame. But as it turns out for us, there's only one question that really matters. Do you know what that question is? So you, have to, you take a test at the top of the paper. There's this little space, this little blank. Right next to it, it says name, right? It turns out for us, the answer to that question is the only question that matters. Whose name are you going to put there? Your name or Jesus's? You put your name down, you get to keep your answers. You put Jesus' name down, you get his. Which will it be? Let's pray.